each one of us lived up to our potential and managed our resources so well that we could provide for ourselves, our families, and our communities in a meaningful and substantial way. Join Step Right with Lynn, the show dedicated to empowering socially conscious individuals to manage their financial resources for the benefit of themselves, their families, and the greater community. Here's Lynn Wedham, Certified Financial Planner and Managing Partner at Step Right Capital Planning. Good morning, and welcome to Separate with Lynn. A gentleman named Henry Ward Beecher is quoted as saying, The difference between perseverance and obstinacy is that one comes from a strong will and the other from a strong won't. I'm sure you'll see the relevance of this quote when you hear the story of my guest today, who definitely comes from a strong will. Please join in the conversation by calling in or using the chat room on the A to Zen website. Email me anytime, lynn at stepright.ca. I'm here to answer your questions about your financial needs, your retirement income planning, or how to effectively add charitable giving to your financial plan or your estate planning. That email again is lynn at stepright.ca. That's L-Y-N-N at Stepright, S-T-E-P-R-I-G-H-T dot C-A. Our topic today is Tips for Success in Life and Business with Ron Foxcroft. Ron Foxcroft is a man of many talents, a logistics entrepreneur, an NCAA basketball referee, and the inventor, manufacturer, and worldwide distributor of the most popular whistle on the planet. Foxcroft has traveled the globe speaking to professionals about leadership and what it takes to get ahead in business and logistics. Foxcroft is the inventor of the Fox 40 P-less whistle, which is now sold in 140 countries and is used worldwide in almost all major sports and by safety professionals involved in air, land, and water search and rescue missions. As the founder of Fox 40 International, Foxcroft was named by Profit Magazine as one of the top 10 Canadian entrepreneurs of the decade. As a baseball guy, Foxcroft was Canada's only NCAA referee, and he has officiated over 1,500 international games in 30 countries, including the gold medal game in the 1976 Montreal Olympics. He was inducted into the Canadian Basketball Hall of Fame and named by Referee Magazine one of the 52 most influential referees in North America officiating history. Foxcroft is currently employed by the NBA to evaluate the performance of referees. Foxcroft is also a logistics entrepreneur. Starting in 1982, he built fluke transport from three trucks to 176 trucks and 475 trailers. Beginning with 250,000 square feet of warehouse space in 1984, Fluke Warehousing now encompasses 1.3 million square feet. As chairman of the board at the John C. Monroe International Airport, Foxcroft has played a key role in making the Hamilton facility the largest courier cargo airport in Canada. Foxcroft received an honorary Doctor of Law degree from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, was named Hamilton's 1997 Distinguished Citizen of the Year, and is a recipient of the Queen Elizabeth II Gold Medal Jubilee. Welcome to Step Right with Lynn Ron. 
Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. I guess you read that just the way I wrote it. It is just the way you wrote it. It's a, it's a, <laughs> exactly. A, a very, exactly. It's a very, very good, uh, uh, very good, concise um, bio there. I describe uh, my career as um, diverse, but certainly not dull. It has not been dull when uh, you uh, referee basketball for 35 years in the States, run a trucking company, and uh, operate uh, uh, such a interesting company, diverse company as Fox 40, where we're in 140 countries. Yes, and that's what we want to talk to you about uh, today, Ron, is how that all comes about to uh, to accomplish all that. Right. So, right. you know, with all of those diverse things, there's several stages to your story, Ron. So let's start at the beginning. Um, you know, what made, how did you make the decision uh, to get into what you were doing? What were you doing right out of high school? Uh, let's Absolutely. start at the beginning. Right at the beginning, I was a very poor student at Waterdown High School, just outside of Hamilton. And um, I actually went there to play sports. Every sport that was on the map, I played it. And actually, it really enjoyed it. I was a quarterback at football, played on the basketball team. Then I got hurt in my grade 12 year and basically couldn't play sports anymore. So um, mm. being a poor student in the classroom... And really, the only reason I was going to school was so I could get enough marks to play on all the sports teams. I left school. I left okay. school. Uh, the classroom absolute, absolutely bored me to death, as it does, as it did, many other successful entrepreneurs. My friend Mike DeGroote, Ron Joyce from Tim Hortons, and so on. Uh, I don't think they were as poor as students as me, but they did not enjoy school, and I didn't enjoy school. So I left, and um, I kind of left with, with a fear of failure that, you know, I didn't finish high school, and uh, kind of intimidated in the world until my mom and dad said something to me. They said, Ron, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the neighborhood. You have to be seen as the hardest working guy in the neighborhood. Well, mm -hmm. that was achievable. I always, I don't know whether it was born or whether it was developed, but I always had a little business on the side, cutting lawns, doing landscaping in high school and so on, and I had no trouble working. In fact, I loved work. So right out of high school, I got a job as a payroll timekeeper for a construction company which is very good industry to get into because you learn a lot of things about a lot of people and a lot of trades and so on. I went there and, and got a rating clerk job at a trucking company where I learned how to operate and how not to operate a trucking company. I found the industry very challenging, and, and the one thing that, that I really enjoyed was a huge challenge and trucking even to this day i've i've been in the business now for 32 years it's still an enormous challenge and every single day you come to work you you have to uh get over a challenge so i um i decided then that um maybe i should get into my own business because mm -hmm. i was essentially unemployable with not very much education. <laughs> okay. So 
I heard of a trucking company that was uh, struggling, uh, fluke transport, had three great brothers who were getting a little on in years. And I approached them and said, geez, I'd like to buy you. And, of course, they wanted money, and I had no money. But one of the brothers, uh, and this is the really important thing in life about communication, I saw his body language was a little different than the other two brothers. So I went to him and I said, Bob, I know you want money for your trucking company, but you seem to me that uh, your body language tells me you want something else. And he said, yes, I my love is trucking. I want to stay in trucking without the responsibility. I said, mm-hmm. Bob, you sound like you want a job for life. He says, yeah, I want a job for life without the responsibility. I said, if you'll take money over time for me to buy the trucking company, I'll commit right now you've got a job for life working with mm-hmm. me. And... uh He said, that's a deal. And I bought Fluke Transport with no money. And they spread the uh, mortgage over five years so I could, uh, it was kind of like an earn out. I could start running the company and then pay them out of the profits and gave Bob a job for life. He was an amazing man. And he took me around, you know, and taught me the business. And he was kind of like a mentor. Nobody does it alone. Nobody Mm -hmm. in the world today can say, I did it alone. And he taught Mm -hmm. me the beginning stages of a trucking company, and then we took it from there. He worked with me until he was about 85 years old, and he passed away. And um, in the end, end, he didn't come into work very often, but I committed a job for life, and he had a job for life. It allowed me, and what I bought, Uh, was basically a challenge, a big challenge, because the company was struggling. But more important, I bought an opportunity. So the combination of opportunity and a tremendous work ethic, and I was refereeing basketball on the side, so they were 20-hour days, uh, seven days Mm -hmm. a week. And, you know, that was the most fun, the growing, the building, the overcoming all the challenges, that's the most fun. Once you start running a company, if the fun goes out of it, you lose a lot. You've got to have fun. And for me, the fun was the challenge. So we got Mm -hmm. Fluke 32 years ago. They had three trucks. And uh, now we've got, you know, about 170 and 500 trailers and so on. And uh, still the same challenges, still the same challenges. But that was the start. Mhm. So so really that that deal hinged on the fact that that you could see what was needed there to make the deal happen. Absolutely. You know, it wasn't so much it was the trucking industry because basically every industry is the same. You have to bring in more revenue than you spend. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Uh a lot of people take businesses today and they take analysis into paralysis it's not that (laughs) hard you bring in more than you spend out and it's all about relationships communications and having the right people and i learned that i didn't know very much 
I didn't know very much about the industry, but that would have applied to any industry. I wouldn't have known anything about any industry at that time because I was very young. The only thing I really knew something about was referee and basketball. And I could mm-hmm. always go out at night and make a few bucks to pay for groceries so I wouldn't have to take a lot of money out of the trucking company in the early days. So there was always basketball refereeing, which was A, an income source, B, uh, an amazing release of tension. So uh, I I I just kind of, um, my education was learned on the street at the School of Hard Knocks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the most important I learned early, you don't really know very much. So you hire people smarter than you that are smarter than you at things that they do. So everybody in my company, we have about 300 employees. Every single person to this day, about 32 years later, is smarter than me at what they do in the company. And, right, and right. Now, yeah. now my role changed. Now I have to create that environment for them to succeed. And today... The thing I enjoy most is watching my teammates in my company achieve and succeed. Right. That's wonderful. Um, I think that we'll stop right there and and take a break. And okay. uh, we'll look forward to the rest of the story after the break. Thank you. Is there a contribution that you dream of making? In society, planned giving seems to be presented as something you do once you're incredibly wealthy or planning your estate. Step Right with Len focuses on good money management and planning your contribution at every step based on the issues important to you. Learn how to expand the goodness around you and take responsibility for the issues important to you. Tune in for Step Right with Lynn every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Central Time, 7 a.m. Mountain Time, and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on A to Zen.fm. This is Step Right with Lynn. Lynn Wedham is a certified financial planner. To participate in the program today, please call toll-free in the U.S., 815-880-8255. That's 815-880-TALK. Or in Canada, 613-800-8736. Or you can Skype us at atozen.fm. You can also make the choices to ask or comment by email by sending to lynn at stepright.ca. Now, back to the program. Right with Lynn. The topic of the show today is tips for success in life and business, and my guest is Ron Foxcroft. Uh, Ron, we've got you uh, now running a trucking company. Um, we've learned how you were mentored um, by the former owners and worked through that, how you um, made that decision and, and made the um, made the de- put the deal together. Um, so we've got you working at the trucking company, and we've got you also doing the refereeing on the side. So right, tell right. us about that, that 1976 Olympic game. 
Well, I, I really enjoyed refereeing basketball, and it wouldn't be uncommon to leave work at 7 o'clock at night and go out somewhere and referee a basketball game. And, and uh, sometimes I had to sleep in my car because, you know, my work day started at 5 a.m. in the morning because I was the dispatcher. But oh, it was boy. that passion and love for for basketball refereeing that really drove me. And and you know what? Uh, to be really blunt about it, it created an income too. So uh, as I mm-hmm. said earlier, I never had to take a whole lot of money out of my trucking company in the early days. And that's the secret. If you can somehow not bleed your company in the early days, because working capital is always a problem. Anyway, I uh, worked really hard, and at 30 years of age, I got assigned to referee the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. And -hmm. I went down there, and I was greeted uh, by the the organizers, and they said to me, Canadians can't play this game, and we don't think you can ref it, so you're Uh going to get one game. So during that first game, I said, you know, their expectations of me are zero. Anything that I achieve above zero is an amazing achievement. So I went out there in that one game that I was assigned to, and I said at the start of that game, there's probably 500 million people in the world today that want to be where I am right now. I'm refereeing the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And now I was scared. I was nervous, but I also realized that I had a great opportunity. So I went out and refereed the first game, got two games, got three games, got 11 games. After the 11th game, two mounted police came to my hotel room with an envelope. When I opened it, it said, you're assigned to work the Olympic gold medal basketball game on ABC National TV in the United States and Canada and around the world. Wow. And that was at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I remember walking around the streets of Montreal all night because I was, I think I was scared, I think I was nervous, and I think the combination, I was just excited. Mm-hmm. Finally, mid-morning, I got to, you know, about a two-hour nap. Couldn't wait for the game, which was going to be 9 o'clock at night, which was the longest day of my life. Got <laughs> yeah, into that after game. after the night you spent. <laughs> yeah, after yeah. I got into that game, it was at the Montreal Forum where the famous Montreal Canadiens play hockey. Quite mm-hmm. intimidating, to be blunt. Mm-hmm. And I walked out onto the floor. There was 18,000 people, which this was pre-Raptors, pre-Vancouver Grizzlies, pre-NBA in the in Canada. So it was the largest crowd ever to see a basketball game in Canada. Quite um, quite exciting. It, that's a, mm-hmm. an understatement. When they played sure. the national anthems, uh, my knees were like spaghetti. <laughs> I was just, you know, I think, to be honest, more scared than nervous and more nervous than excited. Anyway, got into that game, and there was a play in that game under the basket where Adrian Dantley from the United States, who went on after that game for an amazing career in the NBA, he took an elbow right in the face. There was blood all over the place. I stood in the trail position, blew my whistle with the little P, and it got stuck. So I was embarrassed. 18,000 fans were disappointed. 
because there mm-hmm. was an obvious foul on my whistle. The little pea got stuck. But that moment stayed with me forever. Somehow, I regained enough composure to get through that game, and I think I did a pretty good job. Because at the end of that game, someone approached me in my hotel about refereeing in the NCAA. And you can imagine a Canadian kid that grew up in Burlington, Ontario, being approached by someone in the NCAA, something you dream about, you know, schools like Mm -hmm. Notre Dame, UCLA, uh, North Carolina, Duke. And they said, have you ever thought of refereeing in the NCAA? And I said, oh, that would be great. Where do I apply? They said, you don't apply. We just hired you. Mm. So I became the first Canadian and I think the last Canadian Mm -hmm. to referee, and I did it for 20 years in nine conferences, had an amazing, wonderful, exciting, happy career refereeing Mm -hmm. in dreamland to me. You know, I'm a Canadian kid, and uh, in the NCAA, big crowds, all the games were on TV, great players, you know, Michael Jordan, I got to referee Michael Jordan's first ever basketball game at North Carolina right. when he had hair and his name was Mike <laughs> and he wore Converse shoes, not Nikes. <laughs> and uh, it was just so very, very exciting. So I ran, but everywhere I went in these big stadiums, I'd blow the whistle with a little P hard and it would get stuck. Mm-hmm. And it kept plain in my mind, something's got to be done. Well, finally, I got assigned to work the pre-Olympics in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The same thing happened in a key part of the game involving Brazil. Mm-hmm. A Brazilian player got fouled. I blew the whistle with the little P. The P got stuck. And the difference between a disappointed crowd in Montreal and a disappointed crowd in Brazil, simply I understand they shoot referees in Brazil. (sighs) So it was at that moment when the P in the whistle got stuck, I said, if I live, I'm going back to Canada and find a way to design a whistle without a P, a P-less whistle. I was absolutely determined. I came home. I said to my wife, I'm going to design a P-less whistle. We need, to, we need to find some money. She said, you've been in Brazil in the sun too long without wearing a hat. I think you're out of your mind. So the very next day, I went into the bank because mm-hmm. I figured it's going to cost a lot of money. I kind of figured in my head, I noodled in the airplane coming home, that this the whole design and thing is going to cost me about $150,000. So I boldly went into the bank, and I said, I need $150,000 to design a peeless whistle. To mm-hmm. which the bank said, you don't need $150,000. You need some serious medication. <laughs> Get out of here. So I pieced the money together with credit from an engineer, a scientist, a Ph.D. in sound, and a music teacher. took three and a half years. I owed $150,000, and I had two prototypes. 
whistle. That was $75,000 a whistle. Right. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. Well, then it really, really got difficult because I owed $150,000. We're in the beginning stages of fluke transport, so you know I didn't have Mm $150,000. I took two months went across Canada to almost every retail sporting goods in the entire country, from the East Coast to the West Coast, to sell retailers on the idea of this whistle. Mm -hmm. Nobody bought a whistle. In two months, what I got, too loud, too soft, too black, Mm. too white, too negative, too pricey, it'll never sell. Nobody will ever buy a peeless whistle, and so on and so on. Came mm-hmm. back home, had my two prototypes, $150,000 debt, and a family that were um, disenchanted as an understatement. Mm-hmm. And I'm still running the trucking company. So right. then the phone rang, got assigned to work the 87 Pan American Games in Indianapolis. Went down there, checked into the dormitory where the referees lived, had my two prototypes, beautiful, 125 decibels, P-less, I loved them, put them under my pillow. Two o'clock in the morning I got up, went in the dormitory, blew the whistle. 400 referees came running, and they turned to me and they said, what is it? I said, it's a Fox 40. And, of course, these are all referees. And they said, can we buy it? And I said, nope, they're on back order. (laughs) And uh, because if it's on back order, you know you want it more than ever. Yeah. And uh, the next day on a picnic table with all these referees who all had jobs, Some of them were in the recreation department. Some were coaches. Some were lifeguards. Some were policemen. Mm -hmm. I wrote 20,000 orders at $6 U.S. We had basically recovered our $150,000 in one day. Yeah. And that was the beginning. That was 1987. I came home. Built a single cavity mold, couldn't make whistles fast enough. Everybody loved it. Everybody, lifeguards, policemen, sports, every sport, soccer, basketball, everybody loved it. We started the business with a single cavity mold, uh, basically out of my garage, then out of my basement, then in a section of fluke transport. And today, which is uh, 27 years later, um, we make 11,000 whistles a day and sell in 140 countries. But the thing I'm proud about, every whistle, every model, every color has been made in Canada by Canadians, never offshore. Every whistle by Canadian. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, we do and have everyone a, a wanted... question. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Everyone... Uh, we do have a All right, you go. <laughs> okay, everyone doubted me, and I yes. think that was the motivation. I think that okay. was the motivation. 
every single person that I touched said, a P-less whistle will never sell. This is never going to work. I think that there, negativity, I hate negativity, I hate critics. Anybody can be a critic. That's the easiest job in the world. What I like to find is the positive. Mhm. Mhm. Um well the other the other thing is that the thing that that brought it to turn around too Ron that was a pretty bold move blowing that whistle in the dormitory. Yeah. No, well, it was funny. <laughs> I was laying there at two o'clock in the morning with a hundred and fifty thousand dollar debt, two whistles under my pillow. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it was a time to be desperate. I'll tell you what the motivation. Yeah. What do was. I got? What do I got to lose by blowing these whistles, eh? <laughs> and and, and uh, there's four hundred referees. One thing about yeah. a referee, they all know a whistle. It's their most important tool. You bet. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so uh, our our producer says that lay laying there at two o'clock in the morning. You said to yourself, "Just blow it, <laughs> just blow yeah, that whistle." Yeah, I had nothing to lose. I had not, I owed a hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and I'm laying there with two whistles under my pillow. I may as well do something. The percentages of something good happening were pretty high, I felt. Uh, the other thing, 400 people could have got mad at me, and which they did. Yeah. Which they did, because yeah. I woke up every one of them. But they're referees, and they knew yeah. that this sound was something different, because every one of them said, can we buy it? Yeah. And, and I it, had it was spent. I had right. just spent two months of going across Canada, people telling me that it was too loud, too soft, too white, too black, too loud, too this, too negative. Everybody was negative, and yeah. and I kept searching for the positive. And here was me saying, but it's 125 decibels. It's beautiful. It's shiny. It's black. This is a sound that will penetrate every crowd. It'll be, It'll work when you drop it in water and pull it out. You know, all I could see was the positive, and other people could yeah. only see the negative. Yeah, and there was no, there was going to be no better time to have a more effective demonstration than at that moment. That was the time, and you know, yeah. one thing about business, timing is everything. Yeah, timing. Yeah. If I hadn't got that call to work the uh, Pan American Games in Indianapolis. Maybe that opportunity, maybe I would have succumbed to people saying, you know, Fox, this thing's never going to go. I think there was a possibility I might have succumbed because, you know, I wasn't about to go more than $150,000 in the hole for my family. Right, right. Well, we're going to take another break now, Ron, and uh, we'll look forward to the rest of the story. Okay. Is there a contribution that you dream of making? In society, planned giving seems to be presented as something you do once you're incredibly wealthy or planning your estate. Step Right with Len focuses on good money management and planning your contribution at every step based on the issues important to you. Learn how to expand the goodness around you and take responsibility for the issues important to you. Tune in for Step Right with Lynn every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Central Time, 7 a.m. Mountain Time, and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on AtoZen.fm. This 
is Step Right with Lynn. Lynn Wedham is a certified financial planner. To participate in the program today, please call toll-free in the U.S., 815-880-8255. That's 815-880-TALK. Or in Canada, 613-800-8736. Or you can Skype us at atizen.fm. You can also make the choices to ask or comment by email by sending to lynn at stepright.ca. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to our show today. Uh, Ron Foxcroft has been telling us his motivational story full of advice for life and business. Um, Ron, we've, so we've got you, um, you know, we know how you got into trucking. And, yep. you know, we've heard a bit of, of the story of the Olympic game. How did you expand the trucking business into warehousing? Well, that was a great thing. You know, um, my people to this day say to me, Ron, we're not in sporting goods. We're not in safety. We're not in trucking. We're not in warehousing. We're in the business of quality customer service. We are in the business of providing quality customer service to our customers. And, you know, mm-hmm. our trucking company, we work 24 hours a day. Uh, I always answered my own phone in the beginning, and uh, we never closed. In other words, if a if a customer had a headache at 3 o'clock in the morning, they knew they could call me at home because the phone was beside my bed and say, I've got a headache, I need a truck at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. And basically what happened... Uh, uh, our customers got used to us being there for us, quality customer service 24-7. The only thing to have in business is oxygen, and the oxygen is the business the, the business that your customers provide to you. It's, it's called money, but in my world, it's called oxygen. It allows you to breathe, mm-hmm. yet you really have to appreciate your customer and know everything about them, what they take in their coffee, what they take on their hamburg. So we were doing pretty good in the first couple of years of Fluke and and quality personal service. There was no emails, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter. You either talked face-to-face with a customer or you talked to that customer on the phone and they felt your body language and they felt the fact that you appreciated them. And that came through in passion, commitment, emotion, and so on. So several of my customers said, you know, you're doing a really good job. When we need a truck at 7 o'clock in the morning, and of course our famous slogan, if it arrives on time, it's a fluke. Everybody yeah, well loved known. our slogan. If yeah. it arrives on time, it's a fluke. And they say, you know, when we need a truck at 7 in the morning, 8 in the morning, 5 in the morning, you're there. We have warehousing. We have warehousing opportunities. If you commit to work as hard at warehousing as you do at trucking, we will provide you with our warehousing business. And I mm-hmm. thought, wow. First thing, I don't know anything about warehousing. So what do you do? You go out and hire somebody smarter than you about warehousing. So I hired a warehousing manager who knew more about warehousing than me. And, of course, I knew nothing. And he was terrific. So we went out and we rented 46,623 square feet of space. (laughs) 
which was a big undertaking because now we had a responsibility early in our career of paying rent on 46,000 square feet of warehousing space. Within mm-hmm. a month, we we filled it with basically wow. vertically integrated business. People that we were trucking for needed warehousing space. Mm-hmm. So within a month, within three months, Fortunately, in the building that I rented, I just rented a corner of the building, and it was empty. The whole building was 250,000 square feet. We quickly, in 90 days, expanded into 173,000 square feet of space. Good warehousing business, and it was coming from our trucking clients. So mm-hmm. one day, the owner of the building, who was in the United States, phoned me and said, look, you're using 173,000 square feet of space. Why don't you buy the building? Well, mm-hmm. to be honest, you know, as bold as you sounded, I was scared to death. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, my God, it's one thing to pay rent on 173,000 square feet. It's another thing to buy a building for 250,000 square feet. Anyway, I met the owner, and he looked at me, and he said, um, if I hold the mortgage for 100% of the value of this building, will you pay the mortgage? And I said, yes, sir. Because I'll work 24 hours a day to make sure that we have enough business in your building to pay your mortgage. And I bought the building. I -hmm. bought the building. It was $3 million way, way, way back uh, in the early 80s. $3 million today in 2014 would probably be about $20 million, but it was $3 million then. But I had 173,000 square feet of warehousing business in a building that was 250,000. Within six months, the building was full. The building was absolutely full. And we went through a learning curve of first getting a BA in warehousing, then we got an MBA in (laughs) warehousing, then we got a doctorate in warehousing, and then we became pretty good at warehousing. (laughs) Within about two years... (laughs) We became pretty good, and I just wanted it to be uh, – I told everybody I want our, our uh, warehouse to look like a hospital operating room. Clean mm. floors, clean walls, clean packaging, square aisles, and so on and so on, and be there for the customer. The other thing I knew about warehousing, there weren't too many warehousing companies in my town, Hamilton, and they opened, they had uh, what we called then banker's hours. Uh, they opened at oh. 8 in the morning and closed at 4.30. Well, okay. I saw an opportunity there. We opened and never closed. We were open oh. 24 hours a day. So, uh, you know what, we could bring stuff in at 2 o'clock in the morning. We could clean the warehouse at 3 o'clock in the morning. We ran a 24-hour warehouse, and if the customer wanted something out of his warehouse at 4 o'clock in the morning, we were open. That Mm -hmm. really, really gave us, you always look for opportunity and competitive edge. Our competitive edge was we never closed. We kissed the customer. It's the cleanest warehouse in town. It looked like a hospital operating room. And our rates were fair. Our rates were fair. We were never the cheapest. And we were never the most expensive. But we were always best. 
and mm-hmm. our people had a lot of pride in keeping the warehouse clean, and we yeah. often talked about that. So we uh, we started with two hundred and we grew to two hundred and fifty thousand square feet of warehousing, and it was turned out to be a real good thing because some years warehousing would be good, trucking would be not so good, and other mm-hmm. years it would be reverse, and some right. years both would be good or both would be not so good. Right. So it, it it gave us options. And, you know, uh, the warehousing really complemented the trucking because after a while we went out and said, not only can we do your trucking, but we can do your warehousing. And we loved it. We loved it. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I still love it because now we can give people logistics, warehousing, trucking. And when they have a headache, I want them to know that we have got the aspirin bottle. Okay. They know where to turn. We want customers with headaches because mm-hmm. we love we love taking headaches away from our customers. That's our mm-hmm. job. All we want is if you've got a headache, we'll solve that. We'll we'll fix your headache, but you gotta pay us to do that. Mm-hmm. Profit's a good thing. Profit is yeah. a good thing. Because we pay taxes and employ people. So that makes for pretty good corporate citizens. Paying taxes and employing people. What we need more in Canada are more people that are employing people and paying taxes. We don't, we need less people taking money from the government trough. Right. Because we right. pay yes, too many taxes. Well, we're moving we're moving too far into being a uh, there's there's too much service. You know, yeah. like there's too many people employed in service. We're not making anything. We're just serving each other. You yeah, know, that... and there's too much of an entitlement attitude in this country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we need less bureaucracy, less government. I'm a great believer that we could cut the size of government 33% and not miss a blip. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, um I, we won't get into that one. <laughs> no, but you know, I think in business though, you need to find the the ideal moment, and the ideal moment is goes back to what I said earlier. A lot of things in business are timing, timing. Right. You know, in my warehouse company, my trucking customer said to me, "You know, we have warehousing. If you open warehousing." then we can give you all of our business. And I saw that as an ideal moment of opportunity. And I think entrepreneurs can't take analysis into paralysis. I think you have to analyze when is the ideal moment, when do I jump on it, and what are my risks. Right. And you know when you you do that, when you're going to bed at night, your head's on the pillow and you're thinking and you wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning ready to go to work, sometimes that's when your best ideas come into your head and you can seize the moment for that ideal opportunity, the ideal moment, which is opportunity. Right, right. And and you, you, have, you have used that word opportunity a lot of times through here. Darn right. We've talked a lot about challenges and a lot about opportunities. Um, so seeing that ideal moment, <clears throat> but you've acted when you've seen those. You've acted when you've seen those moments. You know what? 
Challenges can be negative. Challenges can be seen as challenges and they can be seen as negative. Entrepreneurs see challenges as great opportunities. If there weren't any challenges, there would be no opportunities for entrepreneurs to to uh, display their craft. So it's one thing to be negative and say, well, this is a challenge, this is an obstacle. It's another thing to say, oh, yeah, but I see this challenge and this obstacle as a great opportunity, a great business opportunity to achieve. Mm-hmm. So you've you've seen the opportunity, you've seen the ideal moment to make that decision, you've taken the opportunity, you've done something with it, but how did you overcome the doubt and the fear that must have been there at times when you made these decisions? Pretty simple. You're given two ears and one mouth, and you should use them proportionately. When you see that opportunity and you see that challenge, but of course you're scared, what you do is you reach out to your mentors. You reach out to what I call my uh, information Rolodex. I have, I still use a Rolodex, and it's got a, a, a battery of people and phone numbers of people that are smarter than me at certain things. So you need to know where to gather the the proper information. And, of course, today it's easier because there's Google. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, you can mm-hmm. find out a lot of information on a computer today. Not that I'm a computer geek. I prefer to talk to smart people and let smart people be smart people. But mm-hmm. the secret there is to admit to yourself, I don't know everything. I may not know anything. But I know where to find out and get the right information. So that helps you overcome the fear. But is there fear when you see obstacles and challenges? And, you know, when I see an opportunity to go out and buy 10 trucks and borrow the money from the bank, am I scared? I am scared to death. Two things. You have to uh, analyze your risk, analyze your reward. The one thing, there's never a reward without some risk. And sometimes that's the difference between winning and losing. The entrepreneur uh, is willing to take the risk because if he's wrong, the entrepreneur pays the price. It's your own money. It comes right out. So you can't be wrong. You know, if you can hit 98% of the time correct, you're doing great in business. But you can't worry about the 2% when you're wrong. You can't brood over it. You can't, you don't get down in the dumps over it. The other thing that you have to overcome when you're in business, loneliness. Mm -hmm. It's just you. Because when you're in your own business, it's not like the government where you can fluff it off on the bureaucrats and you can Mm -hmm. blame the opposition. Yeah, the buck stops with you. Right there. And that's a Mm -hmm. hell of a good thing because it makes you more accountable to yourself. The hardest person that you have to please is yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. So tell us, what does it take to be a successful entrepreneur? First of all, hiring the right people. Hiring the right people 
is 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 vital. Number two, knowing where to gather information on topics that you don't have the answer to. Being a heck of a good listener. You really have to be a heck of a good listener. You have to know the difference between persistence and obstinance. You know, and I, I there's a balance there. There's There's really a balance there. But I think, basically, what does it take? It takes... An amazing work ethic. That's the thing today. Not an entitlement attitude, but an amazing work ethic. You have to have a passion also for what you do. Like, I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and if I couldn't go to work, like I'm going to retire when I'm 98 years old. Because <laughs> if, I, if I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and I can't go to work, that is a disappointing day because I know when I get to the office, there is going to be a lot of exciting opportunities. There's going to be a lot of exciting things to happen. And really the most important thing, I'm going to talk to interesting people, amazing people, people smarter than me. I love sitting on committees where everybody is smart and I love to sit on that committee and the first 30 minutes of sitting on that committee with smart people, I just listen. And to me, I think you have to have, certainly you have to have work ethic. But if you haven't got the passion, then you should get on to do something else. If you don't mm -hmm. like what you're doing and don't, don't enjoy the people. See, the people that I deal with every day are truckers, sporting right. people referees these are people with their feet on the ground no right. airs no phonies these are people that that work hard every day they're fascinating they're interesting they're smart and because my career is so diverse trucking warehousing i'm in the real estate business and i'm obviously in sporting goods and i'm obviously in safety and security and deal with very smart people lifeguards people that are are doing great things in canada boy oh boy i think that all comes back if you've got passion to do what you want to do, you can overcome almost every obstacle and turn every obstacle into an opportunity. That's wonderful. We have just a few more minutes, uh, Ron. What can you um, tell us regarding making decisions? Well, uh, that's a very good question. You know, there's one thing I dislike, and that's indecisiveness. I hate procrastinators sometimes when you're making a tough call your first inclination your first gut feel is usually the correct one if you've done your homework if you've done your homework and you've done your analysis and you've analyzed the risk and rewards usually and I learned that from refereeing the way to go through business is have a decisive personality, a decisive attitude. Like I say, I hate procrastinating. And it's like mm -hmm. somebody that would go into a department store and see something that they really like and spend the next two hours going around the department store humming <laughs> and hawing 
and go right back to where their very first choice, that's usually what it is. But you know what? Right. Do your homework. Do your analysis. Don't take it into paralysis. Analyze your risk and rewards. Be decisive. Now, if you're wrong, so be it. You're mm-hmm. accountable you to yourself. That becomes a learning experience. That is not a mistake. That becomes a learning experience. So anytime you're wrong, don't brood. Just say, okay, I was wrong in that particular. I I made a bad judgment, but I'm hitting 98% on good judgment. So I'm going to take that. What did I learn from that situation? A learning experience. I have to thank you, Ron, for being with us today, sharing your experiences and your advice with us today. It's been terrific. It's truly a motivational and Canadian story. Uh, We're so glad that you were with us today. Thank you very much. Indeed, it's been my pleasure and continued good luck in your business. Thank you so much, Ron. At this time, I'd like to remind the listeners to tune in next week um, when our uh, guest uh, will be, um, and I'm not ready with our with our guest uh it's the she's wrote a book called uh mrs fraud and you her name is diane ojar ali and uh, we will hear from her next week we're looking forward to that as well um, remember we welcome your comments at step right with lynn you can send me an email at lynn at stepright.ca. That's lynn, L-Y-N-N, at stepright.ca. Stepright is S-T-E-P-R-I-G-H-T dot C-A. Uh, I would love to hear your comments on the show um, and your suggestions for topics that we should cover, uh, your suggestions for uh, people that have a message to tell. Uh, if you uh, send me your comments, we're sending anyone uh, who who does so out the book. Um, have you filled a bucket today? Wonderful book for uh, for that child in your life. I know you'll enjoy it. Um, talks about how doing good for others fills your bucket and theirs as well. So we are looking forward to um, to that. This is Lynn Wedham. The show is Step Right with Lynn. Until next time, take the right steps to support yourself, your family, and the community. Bye for now. Thank you for choosing to listen to Step Right with Lynn. Lynn Wedham will return next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Mountain, and 6 a.m. Pacific on AtoZen.fm. We hope you'll join us. Remember to celebrate your wealth by doing something for yourself, your family, and your community. Until next time.